you guys are messing around, I'll try to be serious. <laughs> this is a, a line from the Holy Spirit, and if, if you've met her, she's a redeeming genius. And, um, and it goes like this. The only time you'll find God in a box is because he wants to be where you are. It's a parable. <laughs> Come on to the rug, because I think where we're streaming from, they've got the camera set to where if we're on the rug, like you were saying, Paul, we're, we're in a good place. Um, Ted, you were playing with, you know, who am I now that God is telling me that I'm, him, I'm his child, I'm, I'm one of his sons, I could be one of his daughters. Um, then I heard, Paul, you came along and, uh, and kind of played in that same space of identity, that what God really wants out of us is to be human, on our way of trying to be so darn divine. And then, Lynn, I heard you talk about this crash from a preferred self of religiosity to an authentic and then when you found who you were, you found a community worldwide that wasn't even religiously defined. So all of you played with this theme of identity in beautiful ways. Ted, take us back to what you heard these two playing with or thoughts that you had while you shared and then heard more of the same kind of brew. Yeah. Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. But it's very difficult to love your neighbor as yourself when you don't know who yourself is. He didn't say to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, or as if they were yourself, but as yourself. It's only in unity, in our identity in Christ and He in us, that we can truly even love others and love ourselves. So for me, love is the key, but you cannot love others until we first love ourselves as the sons and daughters of God, seeing already our divinity, meaning we are partakers of the divine nature, meaning we are in him and he is in us. This, to me, is the key to all of life, and it ends in one thing, and it is love. It's really simple. Yeah. Hmm? <laughs> let, me, let me ask this. Okay, here's, and, and playing with this, what is our original nature? What is the truth of our being? Where do you guys start the whole story? of call it salvation or God's act of creation, but who are we on the basis of God identifying us? So uh, when I was a child, I grew up in Erie and Jaya, a couple of the, uh, valleys away from Tom City Makasi Banyo, by the way. And uh, um, I went to boarding school. And um, so uh, children know who they are until someone tells them that they're not, or they automatically trust until someone tells them it's dangerous or proves to them it's dangerous. And then we become controllers and fear become the motivator rather than trust. And pleasing then replaces the process of trust because pleasing is so much easier than trusting. And the journey for most of us is this question of trust, but it's based in who do you think, who do you know you are? And a lot of us got dismantled in that in the, what should have been the normal celebration of our humanity in Jesus, and we got taken apart. So I learned I didn't belong to my parents, you know, because I was subordinate to the mission. And I learned that through sexual abuse that I didn't belong to my um, masculinity, uh, you know, in boarding school and in the tribal culture. 
And, um, and then I learned I didn't have a color or a tribe. And um, so, but I did learn what, I did learn, I did hear the message. You're a piece of shit. Oh, they, they had a theological term for it. Anybody can tell me what it is? Depravity. Yeah, well, total depravity, <laughs> right? And I was told that the, the essential nature of Paul Young was that. Now, Jesus comes along and says, okay, and so do all the teachers saying, you need to change the way of your being to match the truth of your being. But the truth of your being is, pff. Now, they didn't bother to tell me that their theology about that was also totally depraved. <laughs> Who knew how that ever happened, but so, so, but I was told that. And, and let me tell you, if that's what you believe about the truth of your being, there is no way that you can get the way of your being to match it. Wholeness is not possible. And wholeness is what holiness is. It is a relational reality in which I'm authentic and integrated as a being. But if I'm, if I'm in conflict with my real nature, which is depravity, there is no way. All I can do is give it my best shot for as much energy as I have, but at some point, I'm gonna be done, because I can't do this. And then I began to found out, find out that Jesus is the truth of my being. You know what that tells me? That when the fruit of the Spirit is expressed to us, we're, we're talking about the truth of my being, because this is about the way God is, and he created out of their very being in nature. This is why nobody prays uh, in the New Testament for patience. Now, we don't do it because we're still stuck in, well, you know, you know what that means. The mean ogre, narcissistic, you know, or narcissistic God that Jesus has come to save us from, he's going to, if you ask for patience, he's going to give it to you, all right, you know? So, but the reason they don't pray, pray, pray for patience is because they've understood the truth of their being. Guess what? Before any of the damage, I was already a very good creation. And on top of it, I'm a new one. A new very good creation. That is truer about me than any of the damage. You know what that means? I, by nature, am patient. Now, for me to get the way of my being to match it, how easy is that? When I'm impatient, I know, you know what? This is not, this is a lie. It's not according to the truth of my being. It's not because I'm repressing the truth, which is the depravity, you know? This is about the fact that I, by nature, you know what else I am? I am gentle, I'm kind, I am furious about the things that hurt the ones I love which is, includes everybody that's inside this creation. I am pure of heart. To find out the truth of my being destroyed the hole that pornography had on my life years ago. Because the way of my being can match the truth of my being. And Jesus comes to tell me, let me tell you, look at me. I'm the truth of your being. Okay, you're hearing us. We want to hear you. We want you to be part of the conversation. So who has a question 
for one of these three, if you'd come to this mic, uh, we've got 11 minutes and 30 seconds to be in a privileged, privileged space. So share your name, please, and your question. Megan, um, Paul, thank you for sharing that. I've actually, that's sort of been on my mind. Sorry, I'm a crier. <laughs> um, I came from that background and um, I'm so changed now. I've um, come coming back to it from a different space, but now I'm trying to reconcile the two. So I hear what you're saying and I believe that, but help me understand why don't we see more of that in scripture? Why is that not, why is that not more clear? Um, and I know the whole concept we were talking about yesterday, you can find whatever God you want to find in scripture. I, I get that. I'm not fighting with that idea. I'm just saying, why, why is it that we still see such language, even from Jesus, about wrath, about, um, you know, this way, or even the song we just sang this morning, uh, Jesus, you know, thank you for taking my burden, for taking my place. What, what is my place if my original nature is good? And it's only through the world and fear and shame and all those things that I un un come away from that and I need to come back to it. What did he take our place for? That's what I'm trying to reconcile. Oh, boy, simple question. <laughs> and let me tell you, one good question is worth a thousand answers, right? Because we gotta wrestle inside of that. Um, and we can continue this conversation because I love this conversation. Uh, a lot of times we will come and we will reinterpret and we have also translated a lot of things outside of our projection of the kind of G-O-D that's nameless, uh, unapproachable, unreachable, right, holiness that's, that's somehow disconnected from relationship, right? So we do this already. Also, I think because we have a low view of humanity, which I think we do, and God does not. Uh, the, 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 the point that evil exists on this planet is because of God's high view of humanity, that he would submit to it. That's what really ticks us off, that this is a God who by nature submits. Right? And so we don't, because of that, we also don't have a high view in, in, a, in a kind of backhanded way, a high view of evil. We don't understand how devastating this is. How many of us grew up in an evangelical framework where we were hoping to die so we could do the stuff that everybody else was? You know, um, like we were missing out on something in terms of the destructive things. And we don't understand the absolute fury of a God who is opposed to what's wrong and what hurts. I have a daughter who has a brain tumor, a little piece on the backside of her pituitary gland. And because of that, she began to believe a lie about herself, that she was damaged goods. And because of that lie, she opened herself up to all kinds of things that were not part of her being. I'm her dad. Give me an opportunity to be a flaming fury of fire. And I will go after not only that piece, a tissue that hurts her, but I will go especially after every lie that keeps her from being fully free and fully alive. Where does that longing come from? Where does that way of loving my child come from? It originates in this fiery fury of affection. And this is a George McDonald. Thank you, Brian. If you trust the character of this God, you will run to this God, counting on the fact that this God judges, and you will say, come on, please, come on. Burn out of me everything that keeps me from being free and, and being fully human. Right. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
You want to play with that question? You know, I'm not exactly going to play with that question because it's really too hard for me. Okay. But um, I, I just want to kind of answer on a different level, especially as I look at all the women here. And this is something that needs to be said. I grew up in a, in a culture and a generation where women were either taught explicitly or at least implicitly that your major role in life was to support um, the work, the ministry, the life of a man. And um, my husband would have never said that. He would have not asked that of me, but it's what I had internalized. And so for many years, that's what I did. And I, I think it happens to many women that for many years we just give little bits and pieces of ourselves away, you know, to the highest bidder, to our husband, to our kids, to whoever needs something. We give ourselves away. And then at a certain point, we realize, I don't have a self. I don't know who I am. And then you say, how can I give myself to God, to the world, if I don't have a self to give? And I think a lot of women just get stuck in that, you know, just and go through the rest of their lives in this sort of desperation of wanting to give, not knowing what they have to give. And it's really hard and it's countercultural to back away from that and say, you know, if I want to die to self and give myself fully to God in the world, I have to have a self to start with. And, you know, and I had to go back to my parents and say, who was I as a little girl? You know, what was I then? And it was a very long process. I mean, my dec the decade of my 40s was a decade of rebuilding a lot, and it was really hard, and it was really painful, and I was so happy to hit 50, because I think I can move on from that. And uh, anyway. This wrath of God is against the false self, not against who you truly are. Yeah, I, one thought on that. I mean, thank you so much for the question, it's beautiful. I can only tell you how I've experienced it in my life. I see the wrath of God very similar to the purification of God, which is burning away the lies. Because it was the lie that was first told to Eve, Adam and Eve, that brought about this thing we call the fall, which is you can be made like God. They were already made in the likeness of God. The father of lies has convinced us that we are not. Jesus came to show us who we are. So I th think of the purification of my father as like in a valley burning away all the underbrush so that it can flourish once again as a beautiful, beautiful valley. And in the midst of that raging fire, that hellish experience, yeah, it feels like, oh my gosh, it feels like wrath to me too. But now I see, no, no, no. It's like what Paul just said. This is actually burning away that which keeps me from seeing who I truly am, the diamond, the gold, I in Christ and he in me. Oh, what a loving, beautiful thing this is the Father is doing with me. All that has happened to me in my life that I've seen as suffering was simply that process. It's very simple to me. So then, okay, wrath, come. Burn away who I am not so that I can see and be who I am. Good picture. Helpful. Let's go to your question in our last four minutes. Yeah, uh, my name's Drew, and actually my question's very similar to yours, so feel free to pass over it if it's uh, just uh, replicating things. But uh, Lynn, I was curious, you talked about this time in your life when you were sort of marinating in the Gospels and 
you know, certainly there's a, so much of Jesus' teachings that's um, easier to digest than others. How did you wrestle with those portions that are more difficult to digest, particularly about his um, statements of himself coming again as a judge at the end of the age? Thank you. Okay, I, my answer is probably more intuitive than, I don't know what the alternative would be, but anyway, <laughs> it's alternative. Um, <laughs> you know, I really had such a radical experience of being loved by God of, of, through the words of Jesus. It was so radical. When I say it changed everything, it changed everything. It's like gave me a new found of, foundation of life to build on. And now I tend to see and hear everything through that. The first thing I know is I'm radically loved by God. So then, okay, look at all those other things and try to figure out what they mean, you know, through those lens. But I, I can't tell you how that changed everything for me. And I was, I think I, in, I was given a really radical experience because I was so desperate. I, I was dysfunctional. I mean, I needed help. And, and I think God gifted me with that experience that I cannot deny and is true every day. So I see everything through that. So, mm -hmm. so uh, let me ask you a question. <laughs> I'm a missionary kid. I can get away with So, uh, how significant in your relationships of love do you think it is, do you feel it is, that the person that you are in that relationship can say no to you? You might have to ask that question again. Say, say it again. So, I'm so following. how significant do you think it is in your relationships of love that the person that you are in a relationship with can say no? Um, are you talking about like more from a, a, even a, a standpoint child, of even freedom a, of will or? Yeah, just that yeah. they can say no to you. Yeah, I think that's essential to love is the ability to deny it. So here's the paradigm question. Mm -hmm. If God has gone to such great lengths to protect our ability to say no, because without it, love cannot be. God, who is life, has gone to such great lengths to protect our ability to say no. Why do we have this mythology that says that the event of death that Jesus came to destroy, the event of death would take away my ability to say yes? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Evil exists because God consents to us. It does not originate him. The cross did not originate in God. Jesus is slain from the foundation of the world because there was no way to create this high order of being who would not say no. So if God has gone to such great lengths to protect my ability to say no, why do I give the power to death to define everything? Why do I think that death has the power to take away my ability to say yes? Yes. 